Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the AMA Podcast. My name is Matt Ruddick, your host as always. Thank you so much for downloading this week's episode. Welcome back, everybody. We took a little bit of a break over the holidays. I hope you guys had a great holiday. I know I certainly did. I got to recharge my batteries a little bit. And now I'm back with you. I'm so happy to be back with you guys. Um, so there was some a little bit of news that happened while we were away. Uh, hopefully, if you follow the, the rest of our AMA media channels, uh, you're already aware of it. But if not, today is your lucky day. So just before New Year's, the FAA released their final rule for remote ID. If you guys remember about a year ago, uh, the FAA released what we call what's called the NPRM, the Notice for Proposed Rulemaking uh, for Remote ID. And you guys turned out in droves to make comments to the FAA about what you did and did not like about that uh, proposed rule. Uh, 53,000 comments, as a matter of fact, uh, 53,000 plus, I guess, uh, made comments and uh, it was just an incredible turnout uh, for that comment period. And because of those comments, there were a lot of things changed between what the proposed rule said and what the final rule said. And what I wanted to do today is to bring you guys a conversation that we uh, broadcast last week on our AMA YouTube and Facebook channels uh, with Tyler Dobbs, our government affairs director, as well as Jim Williams, who is uh, formerly the director of the UAS Integration Office at the FAA and is currently a, an advisor uh, to the AMA. Uh, for government affairs. And uh, Jim, was, if you guys might remember, was on the show back uh, almost a year ago talking about the NPRM. And we had such a, a really amazing response to that interview and, and that show that it only made sense to bring Jim back uh, to talk more about what this final rule says and to kind of break it down a little bit. So what you're going to hear today is, is really kind of a deep dive um, into what this final rule says. If you guys kind of want a, a kind of higher level overview, uh, you know, kind of uh, cliff notes <laughs> version, I suppose, uh, we have a couple of videos out there. Uh, there's a uh, uh, view from HQ with Chad Boudreau uh, on our Facebook channel that talks about it in a, a little bit um, broader terms and, 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 and whatnot. So you guys can check that out. We also did another live stream uh, just after the remote ID final rule was released uh, that you can check out also on our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. Um, but today's conversation is going to be a little bit more technical. So if you're into that sort of thing, this is going to be the show for you. So without further ado, I'm just going to jump right into it and uh, let those guys kind of lead the conversation uh, with Tyler Dobbs and Jim Williams talking about the final rule for remote ID. Take it away, guys. Hello, everybody. Thanks you so much uh, for joining us today for this special report uh, live broadcast on remote ID. Uh, as I mentioned, we were a couple of weeks 
after the release of the final rule and we've had some time to kind of take a look and digest what's in this thing and and we wanted to kind of come back and touch base on some of the things that we've learned and uh, we've got a special guest joining us today as well to give his insight uh, but first I want to start with introducing our guest uh, first Tyler Dobbs he is our AMA government affairs director Tyler thank you so much for joining us today thank you for having us Matt glad to be here and also we have Jim Williams. He is the former head of the FAA UAS Integration Office and a current advisor to the AMA. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been on the show in the past. I'm, I'm so happy to have you back to talk to us a little bit today. Love to do it. I've been a model rocketer and a model flyer since I was a kid and still love it today. So it's, it's a privilege to be a part of it. Well, thank you so much for being here, and let's uh, let's jump right in. Uh, so, I'll throw this out to either one of you, whoever wants to take this one. Uh, there were a lot of changes that were made in this proposed rule, uh, or from the proposed rule to the final rule. Uh, what are some of those changes? And, and I got to ask: Is it common for that to for those types of uh, changes to be made in in this type of format? I'll take that one because. You know, I spent a lot of my time at the FAA doing doing rulemakings over the years. And normally when the rule goes out as a notice, uh, it is pretty much completely baked in the mind of the FAA. And they don't, you know, you don't usually make significant changes uh, as a result of the comments. Um, for example, Part 107, the rules that created the, you know, the small UAS commercial operations rules, the only significant change between notice and final there were, and there were a lot of little tweaks here and there, but the only big change was adding the waiver propositions. Um, you know, so that's, you know, yeah, that's important, but it didn't really change any of the foundational aspects of that rule. Same thing with the other rule that was released simultaneously, the flight over people rule. Uh, a couple of tweaks there, like they decided to come to their senses and allow flight over vehicles moving vehicles because that was originally not not approved uh, but you know for the most part i mean they added some provisions about adsb and how that fits in but um and they clarified whether you could use as you know an actual type certified aircraft under 107 but those are you know minor tweaks they did not change the fundamentals of the way they were going forward that rule remote id is almost completely different than what went out as a notice I mean, the only thing that's really completely common is that, you know, the FAA wants everybody to be covered either by a remote ID or, or flying at a fixed site. Uh, that's everything else changed in some way or the other. I mean, the registration was going to be every aircraft had to be registered. Now it's status quo. You register as a, as a pilot and, you know, you're, all your aircraft are covered. Uh, the uh, network capability that was very, very difficult, very expensive, very uncertain how that was going to work, gone. And that, that amazed me because I, I, you know, I knew for a fact that that was something that the, the security agencies were pushing for hard because they sort of envisioned this same kind of setup that they currently have with license plates where, you know, any police officer can punch into their computer in their car and, and look up a license plate. They wanted that same kind of capability gone uh, for a lot of really good reasons. We can get into that later if anybody's curious why that happened. Flying sites were, were the, you know, the FRIA concept, the FAA recognized, uh, you know, flight ID areas. That, that was going to be sort of a temporary 
bridge until everything could be equipped and they had had sort of planned for it to go away over the long term that's gone freeze are permanent and uh you know the process to get them approved they actually published a uh, draft advisory circular that described how they go about getting approved so that's a great thing to change as well uh, manufacturing aircraft with remote id that was there was an import um, provision in that said so nothing could be brought into the country that was wasn't compliant that's gone uh, there still is a provision that says hey if you manufacture it for operation in the u.s you have to have remote id but there's no the only the only way that can be enforced is essentially on an individual who's flying one <clears throat> in the u.s and it doesn't necessarily apply to foreign built aircraft i, I think that's you know, most of the manufacturers of the true drones will, will comply because it's, you know, really, actually it's fairly trivial for them to do that. Um, but the, they, it, it helped out modelers tremendously because they also changed the uh, home built requirements. You know, it was this, some crazy thing like for, for manned aircraft that 50% of all the parts had to be manufactured. That's gone. So now it's strictly just, you made it for recreational or educational purposes. It does. There's no nuances about that. So you, know, you get a kit, you build it. You don't. You know. You don't have to comply with remote ID. You can obviously you can build it to either fly with a an add-on module. And the add-on module was actually an idea. I you know I, maybe other people came up with it, but the first time I heard about it was at AMA. Uh, I can't remember who individually came up with it, but it was on one of our discussions about what to do with the rule. Tyler, was that was that you? <laughs> well, we, I was just going to bring up, we've been getting some prototypes. You and I just looked at one last week. And so yeah. um, there are a lot of modelers, a lot of people within AMA's community who are coming up with some devices that are going to fit within these standards once, once we get those finalized um, to where, you know, something that's cost effective, small and, and easily changeable from aircraft to aircraft is going to be a, a real thing. So, um, you know, I'll also mention that if you look at your comments and AMA's comments and many of the, the 53,000 comments from our members, um, they were listened to. Uh, a lot of these changes are in line with what the industry wanted to see. Um, and, and I'll just reiterate, you just don't see that very often in, in this rulemaking process. I mean, in creating this whole new means of compliance with an add-on module, that was in the comments. That was in, I know it was in mine. I know it was in AMA's comments as a, as a suggestion. You know, I think it was Tony Stillman who came up with the idea. He said, you know, yeah, there are these modules you can add onto your aircraft that, that, you know, downlink your speed and stuff. He says, I wonder if something like that could be made for, for model aviation. So, you know, I, I think AMA can, can claim credit for that whole uh, idea being in the the new regulation and and you know the the staff should be proud that, that we were listened to and the members who all put in their their comments that included that idea you know it, it had a huge impact because now you can you can build a kit you can add one of these things to it and you can fly it without actually having to be at a, a freya if you don't have one that's uh, you know accessible to you or your flying site for whatever reason isn't isn't qualified to, to become a FRIA. So, I mean, like here in the DC area, obviously any, any club that got permission to fly in this, in this area would probably never get authorization to become a FRIA just because of the national security implications. 
But having that add-on module means that, you know, those of us in this area can still fly legally. So again, that's, you know, that's a huge change, a huge win for, for model aviation. Um, so, I, you know, I just, I am really amazed and pleased. I had a, I had a nice conversation with, uh, with Jay Merkel, who is the current head of the UAS integration office, who was responsible for coordinating this rule across the, across the federal government. And I, you know, I complimented him on how well done the rule was. And, and he said, he told me what a huge battle it was with other, other federal agencies, but that our comments enabled him to win that battle. So I just want everybody to understand, everybody who took the time to send in a comment, it really mattered. So thank you all. Yeah, I, I, I got to echo those sentiments. I mean, you know, I think it was 53,000 plus comments that were that came in. Uh, and and really, all of those major issues, the, the issues that you just laid out that were in that proposed rule, were really addressed and I, I know I was surprised I think you guys were surprised as well uh, by how much really got accomplished there um, let's move on briefly uh, to talk about these the three paths uh, to compliance uh, for folks that maybe they this is their first uh, exposure to what this new final rule says uh, can we touch briefly on what these uh, compliance paths look like for for uh, recreational users Right. So, so everybody understand why this came about. I mean, the, it, it really had nothing to do with the modeling community. It had to do with the, you know, the new DJI world of, of drones that sort of can operate autonomously. And the, when the FAA came out with regular, proposed regulations to allow flight over people, the law enforcement community rose up in arms and said, wait a minute, how do we know that aircraft is actually legitimately approved to be flying over this crowd of people? Uh, from one that's got malintent and the FAA is like, mm. so that, you know, that was then the beginning two years ago of the process of coming up with some means that a police officer or, you know, or a federal official, whoever could come up with to determine, okay, yeah, that, that drone is registered. It's known, it's permitted to be there. Um, and, and so that was how this all started. So, Obviously, the FAA wanted to make sure that, you know, they maintained the right balance of compliance with, you know, essentially not screwing up the, the model aviation community. The law enforcement side of the world was like, we don't want any exceptions. We want everything to be, you know, mandatory, lockdown tight, you know, networked. And that's and they sort of won the battle on the notice. And that's why the notice came out. And that was so, you know, so strict. But eventually cooler heads prevailed and the FAA succeeded so there's there's now three ways to comply with the remote id rule number one the standard method is that the aircraft is manufactured with remote id built in so pretty much every dji you know every skydio aircraft will be manufactured with the ability to transmit a set of information required in the regulations that includes the location of the operator the location of the aircraft speed altitude etc so that they get a complete idea of where, you know, what that aircraft is, what it's doing, and, and most importantly, a registration number that can be tied back through the FAA database to, to an individual. No individual information is actually transmitted, but the, the FAA has a database that they can tie it to. It's kind of like the, you know, the license plate situation. So that's the standard way. That kicks in um, 
for the manufacturers in 20 months from when the rule is actually published, which last time I checked, it hadn't been published yet, but it should be any day now. So figure, you know, somewhere in, in 2022, late 2022, they will be required to start manufacturing with remote ID. The, the next way to comply is with the add-on module, the broadcast module that we talked about already, uh, you know, for aircraft that aren't built with it or retrofitting existing aircraft, like, you know, like a model aircraft in our, in our closets, we can tack it on. You register that, there's an ID that's permanently established for that module. You register that on your drone zone registration, just like your current uh, registration for, for you as a pilot. And it, uh, you know, the we uh, this is great, good graphic. Um, right now, we don't know how much they're going to cost because uh, both both the standard and the broadcast module are dependent upon an industry developed standard. Um, right now, the leading contender for that is an ASTM standard that's been under development for a couple of years per request of the FAA. It was finalized, but it's going to have to be updated to be. Uh, compliant with the rule because some of the details on what's broadcast and how it's broadcast changed as part of the rule change. So once that's updated, the FAA can accept it using a uh, a letter of of uh, there's a term of art. It's like a letter they published on their website that says, "Yeah, we've reviewed and accepted this standard." And then the manufacturers have to self-certify that they're meeting uh, that accepted standard. So. And then any anytime you buy a module or you buy an aircraft, it should be labeled to state that, yes, we comply with this standard accepted by the FAA, et cetera. So now the, the remote ID for uh, the standard methodology, which can apply for uh, beyond visual line of sight operations, uh, the mod broadcast module cannot, and that's because the broadcast module doesn't isn't required to transmit the location of the of the flyer, uh, and so they want to, the the idea is that well, if you're flying and they ID it, you can look around and see if it's within visual line of sight. You'll be able to see where the where the flyer is and you know the operator is, and uh, be able to tie the two together. So that's where broadcast modules. And then the the third the third method is the FRIA. Uh, which is the you know the, the uh, essentially a flying site recognized by the FAA. Uh, they don't want to start approving those for uh, basically for another 18 months. So that means we'll be able to operate sort of status quo until then. Uh, and then the the actual compliance with the requirement is 30 months or 32 months, I guess, because the we still you know the two months before the rule was actually effective. Uh, so it's a while before this all comes into comes into effect, uh, but the, that third methodology is the one that, you know, most of traditional modelers will be able to take advantage of, not have to equip at all, which means that it shouldn't, that that means that manufacturers of kits, uh, models, uh, you know, won't have to uh, apply with from a manufacturing standpoint, because they can simply state that the aircraft was intended for operation at Afria, so it didn't, does not contain uh, the equipment on it. I don't think the FAA would have a, have an issue with that. There's no enforcement mechanism. There's no import controls or anything. So you know, companies that do that. Plus, you could also say, I mean, most most aircraft don't come fully assembled or or fully uh, ready to fly. 
So the only the only nuance that we hopefully let's get cleared up when the advisory circular comes out uh, is whether or not a ready to fly um, you know model model that you can get for you know 100 bucks 150 bucks would be required to comply with remote ID or not um, and you know so that's still sort of the only gray area in my mind around around all of this. And Al, a lot of our questions come up around the flying sites. Um, I know that we have a number of clubs in controlled airspace right now that are working through letter of agreement process. That is a separate process from this FRIA recognition. Um, so if you went through the, L the LOA process or letter of agreement process, that doesn't mean that you're a recognized FRIA already. That'll be a, a separate step that we'll have to take and a step that we can't even start, as Jim mentioned, um, 20 months from when this is published in the, the register. So um, again, AMA is going to be sending out all kinds of messaging to clubs when that process is up and running. Um, I know that's probably our number one question on this is how do I get my club recognized as a free of site and get exempt? Um, and the short answer to that is right now you can't. Uh, but when that's available, AMA will essentially try to register these for our clubs. Um, we're, it's going to be a lot of back and forth between AMA headquarters and clubs once we start that process. But we're going to carry as much of the water as we can to get you recognized. Um, in and remember, regards we have to, almost three years to get that done. So it's right. not like it has to happen overnight. Yeah, which is good because, uh, you know, there, we do have a number of clubs and it will take some time to get these charted and recognized. And another question that we get a lot is, will all the sites be approved? And you mentioned the CEFRA around D.C., the special flight rules area. That's probably an area where if you request to be exempt, you're not going to get it. Uh, you're going to re be required to have a transponder. And there may be a few other unique locations that are similar. Um you know, near approaches in, in controlled airspace. If you look at the proposed rule back last December, they mentioned, uh, I think the number was 10%, roughly 10% they expected to be denied on the request. Um, that's 24, we have 2,400 clubs. That wasn't in the final rule, that those numbers, um, but we have 2,400 clubs and that roughly puts you, you know, 240 um, that they expect. Obviously, we haven't went through the process yet to determine that exact number, uh, but there will likely be some clubs and locations that may be a little sensitive, um, maybe near full manned aircraft operations where they need to have the broadcast module on their aircraft, regardless if they're a fixed site or not. And I think something else to keep in mind for folks that uh, you know, was that they may have been very familiar with the proposed rule. You know, there one thing that's changed, and, and Jim touched on it earlier, is there was a, a finite length of time to get those free as registered. And that's been done away with. And I think that's going to be a huge help for folks. It's, you don't have to rush in to get your registrations in there as soon as that registration opens in about 18 months. Yeah, and I think uh, four years, I think, is the how long that designation will last. Um, once you get within 120 days of, of your four-year expiration date, there's there will be a renewal process um, to go through. So, uh, yeah, much more flexibility within that, that free of ruling than what we saw in the proposed rule uh i saw some questions in the comments uh, relating to weight limits uh you know the 250 gram weight limit that has been talked about for for registration how does how does uh, weight limits play into this remote id rule so 
since the registration, the broadcast module will be tied to your FA registration, it has that same 0.55 pounds or 250 gram threshold that registration has. So if you don't need to register your aircraft, you don't need a broadcast module or remote ID transponder on the aircraft. Right. The one exception to that is if you're if you're operating commercially under Part 107 and you're going to fly over people, even the 0.55 pound aircraft are going to have to have remote ID. Yep. So if you bought one of those cool new DJI Mavic Minis, uh, you know, eventually it's going to have to have remote ID if you're if you're operating it, you know, over over people. Well, Jim, all this is well and good on on this signal being broadcast, but. Um, How's this going to be viewed? What types of frequencies are we going to be using? Get into that a little bit and explain to the viewers. Well, that you know, the FA didn't specify that, so I, I thought that was pretty smart because you know, in the in the past, FA would have specified a specific signal, a, you know, frequency, uh, power level, etc. But then then the rule could be obsoleted if some new technology came out. So what they did is they said, okay, there's you know, we're going to recognize uh, these industry standards that will will establish a means of compliance. So if you've looked at the ASTM standard, it essentially uses the 2.4 gigahertz um, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth uh, signal technologies. And so the only the only thing the FAA said about that is that you have to you know transmit it basically at the highest allowable power so that you can get it at the maximum range. That's the only criteria they put in there. So the theory is, and there's already prototypes of this available, is that if you're transmitting on Bluetooth or or the Wi-Fi, you know, frequencies, just like, you know, like your phone does all the time, is it's always looking for Bluetooth signals and it's always looking for a Wi-Fi signal. So the idea is that you just, you know, so you write an app for the phone and then that app listens for those signals that as specified in that standard. So there's and the you know the FAA is not specifying who can create the app or how it's done because the information will be available. The theory is that the police will have you know an additional capability for their mobile devices that would allow them to access the FAA's registration database so that they could they could tie that uh, identification number. Uh, to, you know, either from the broadcast module or from the aircraft to an individual. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's there's actually prototypes done. The FAA did a demonstration of broadcast ID where they, you know, they actually, I can't, I don't think Jay told me who it was, but they had a company write an app that they could use to do that. They had a company bring in a prototype of the, you know, the broadcast module, and they were able to demonstrate that you could indeed do what we've just described as part of the, uh, you know, they're approving to the federal law enforcement community that this current rule would actually work for them. So that's the idea. In other words, police officer holds up their phone, looks on it, so I look up, they can tell who it is. You know, if it's a standard ID, they can tell, you know, a GPS location of where, where they are. I'm guessing that they'll use the location of their their phone, you know, something like Google Maps to actually show them, you know, where they are relative to to them, and they could easily walk over and find the individual who was who was flying the aircraft, which is the objective of remote ID, after all. Well, guys, we you know we've covered a lot of ground. I got to ask 
uh, Jim, you know, what do you see? I mean, how do you see this moving forward? You know, we've got this final rule now. Uh, is there anything else that you've noticed in this rule that you think is going to have a, a major impact moving forward? Well, I don't think it's a major impact, but it is one thing I think everybody should be aware of. Now, granted, in three years from now, we'll probably already have forgotten, but it does. the rule does authorize police officers to request your registration. So if you're, if you're, if you're flying an aircraft, they can say, well, I want to see your registration. I want to see if you are indeed legally registered to operate that aircraft by the FAA. So that's, you know, that's something that people just need to be aware of that, you know, get in the habit of carrying that FAA registration in your wallet. Um, unfortunately, AMA ID isn't, you know, isn't good enough. You're going to have to have the FAA uh, registration card as well. Tyler, any final thoughts from you, sir? Uh, no, uh, maybe just one. I, I think that, you know, we have this final rule now, but we still have the implementation portion to go through. So uh, we still have a lot of things that are in question. How is this process going to work? How long is it going to take? Um, things will still need to be interpreted even within the rule. So I think, you know, just bear with us as we work through this. I know that we're working through the, as I mentioned before, the letter of agreement process for higher altitudes and controlled airspace. And uh, Jim and I are actually working on a streamlined process. We've done a number of clubs already and, and we're able to get them above the UAS facility map. Um, and the streamlined process theoretically should allow all of the remaining clubs to go through through the safety risk management panel or, or portion, um, which is really the negotiation arm of this whole process to get those higher altitudes. Um, once we get these comments done, uh, we hope that things will move forward relatively quickly in 2022. And um, I think we can expect the same thing. There's going to be kind of back and forths on remote ID and uh fixed flying sites, their locations, which ones are going to be exempt and which won't. Um, so it's it's going to be a long process, but just continue to to reach out to AMA if you want the, you know, want the latest updates and continue to monitor our email, social media and modelaircraft.org slash gov. Yeah. And one thing on that, and if you, I read the advisory draft advisory circular on recognizing FRIAs and one of the things that you submit with your request is any existing letters of agreement with a with an air traffic facility, which implies to me that that will be, you know, a huge factor for those clubs to use to get their their FRIA designation because they've already been through this this process. Sure. I think the next big thing to come out from the FAA will be the you know the model aircraft AC ninety one fifty seven Charlie. It'll yep. come out as a draft for comment. So that'll be a next opportunity for us to, you know, essentially provide comments to the FAA on whether or not we agree with that. And one of the big changes to that will be the recognition process so that all of these things that say, you know, recognize CBO, recognize CBO in both regulations and advisory material will actually have a written down path to recognition, which is which is something that I wanted to do back when I was running the FAA office. I was trying to figure out a way to get FAA recognition, and the, the lawyers told me I couldn't do it because there was no regulatory path forward. Well, now there is, and the process to do that will be published here, hopefully soon, in that advisory circular. So that'll be the next big thing for us at AMA headquarters is to get through that process so that we are the, the first and the premier community-based organization recognized under these regulations. 
Yeah, and for folks watching, we are going to be bringing you more live streams like this. And when that advisory circular circular does get released, uh, we'll be sure to bring you that information uh, here in another live stream so that you're up to date with all of that information. Uh, Tyler, Jim, thank you guys both for coming on today to talk a little bit about uh, this final rule on uh, remote ID. I think uh, it's I, I really enjoy getting especially Jim's perspective on this because he's been so, you know, kind of in into in into the weeds on this i think more than any of us really so it's really awesome to get your perspective and to share that with our members so uh thank you jim thank you tyler for coming on today i really appreciate it you're welcome okay. and thanks to all our members who worked so hard putting in comments because it really did make a difference well, I hope you guys got uh, a lot out of that conversation. I know I did. Uh, There's a lot of questions that got answered there, and uh, I'm sure there are going to be, be more questions. And you guys, uh, be sure to check out modelaircraft.org slash gov. Uh, that's our government affairs page on our website that uh, is constantly updated with uh, with answers to all of these questions. And uh, you can also uh, send uh, emails to our Gov team as well. Uh, you can give them phone calls if you need to. Uh, all that information is on our website at modelaircraft.org. Um, but most of all, I want to thank you guys uh, so much for listening this week to the AMA podcast. If you haven't yet subscribed, we'd love it if you do so. We're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, we are there. And of course, if uh, you can listen right from your browser as well at modelaircraft.org slash podcast. We release brand new episodes on Mondays, so be sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single one. And if you listen through Apple Podcasts, we'd love it if you'd leave a comment there and rate us. That'll help us move up and possibly be featured on some of their main pages and help us spread the word about model aircraft to as many folks as possible. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions for us, drop us an email podcast at modelaircraft.org. I get all those into my email inbox and I love getting them, so keep those coming. And of course, if you're not already a member of the AMA, head over to modelaircraft.org and see what the AMA could do for you. We'd love to see you out of one of our flying fields very, very soon. And hey, if you're already a member of the AMA, thank you so much for your support. And with that, for everybody here at the AMA, thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll be right here next week with us on the AMA podcast. <laughs>